Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations. The first three are complete forms of the three edited interviews that comprised episode four. And the second three are previously unreleased sections from our coverage of Nashtag 2023 in episodes one, two, and three of season four. In this conversation, friend of the podcast and recently minted Crownwell executive Jerry Mabry joins me to discuss Nashtag 2023. Jerry appeared on the podcast once before when he worked at EchoSense and led the EchoSense side of the Liver Healthy launch. Now he's joined Cronwell, a liver healthy partner and gastrointestinal practice management support firm. As defense's his background, Jerry's conversation reflects heavily on non-invasive testing, as well as the role digital apps will play in patient treatment. He weaves all this into an integrated vision of fatty liver care that incorporates the three issues we've talked about today with the role of biopsy present in future and the impact combination therapy will have on treatment over time. This conversation contains at least 25% more content than the original episode. I have the good fortune to speak weekly with industry executives and academic researchers in unscripted, unrecorded settings. This conversation should bring you some of that feeling as these individuals went home to take lessons from Nashtag for their own work and their own companies. Their perspectives are thoughtful and different. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. This section of the podcast is a one-on-one interview with our good friend, Jerry Mabry. Those who've been listening for a while may remember Jerry because he was part of episode nine in season two, where EchoSense and Cronwell and Modify Health launched their program, Liver Healthy. At that point in time, uh, Jerry was with EchoSense. He's now with Cronwell, so he's still somewhere in the Liver Healthy Troika, although that's not what we're going to be talking about today per se, but I expect you'll hear about Liver Healthy in episode sometime in February. That's just a spoiler alert. Good morning, Jerry. How are you today? Jerry Mabry. I am Brian, good morning, and it's a pleasure to speak on your podcast, Roger. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And Jerry, last time you were tightly scripted, and this time you're unscripted. So whereas a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, gosh, our listeners got to hear what a fantastic radio voice you had. Now they're actually going to get to hear what a fantastic mind you have as well. Louise had planned to be with us. She had a personal emergency come up. Uh, Jorn had not planned to be with us since this is the middle of the afternoon in Mainz, and he's doing physician things, I believe, today. So how is it in Denver today? It is a beautiful, light snowy day in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains above Denver. I highly recommend it for all your listeners. Okay. That that statement was paid for by the Tourism Bureau of Colorado. <laughs> So, so Jerry, first of all, thanks for the kind words about the podcast. This is really simple. What I'd love for you to do is talk a little bit, take a couple of minutes for folks who didn't hear this when we did it a couple of years ago, a little bit about your career history and how you got to where you are now and your involvement with fatty liver disease. I would be happy to do that, Roger. My career in brief involves I'm a biologist by education. I'm a diagnostic product development guy by career. I started out in GI diagnostics roughly 30 years ago when I was an officer in a company called Sandhill Scientific. And I conceived of, patented, developed, commercialized three technologies for esophageal diagnosis. Your listeners who work in the GI space will recognize tests such as impedance manometry, impedance pH, mucosal impedance. Those were all my projects. Obviously, I'm no longer involved with that company. We sold it many years ago and I transitioned over to the liver. I had the good 
fortune back way back in 2006 to what seemed quite accidentally. I met Laurent Sandrin, the, the founder of Echosins and of course the inventor of liberal astrography. At that time, he and his partners who were just starting Echosins in Europe were looking for someone to partner with to bring the fiber scan technology to the United States and all that that involves. So I started working with Laurent and Celine at Echosense back in 2006, did the work on the clinical trials, eventually achieved an FDA clearance in April of 2013, which was no simple accomplishment given that it was truly a novel technology with no predicate. That finally led to uh, commercialization of the product in the United States. Those of you that remember the history of that, back in that era, FibroScan and liver elastography were primarily used to qualify patients for direct acting antivirals, which first entered the market in October, November 2014. We were very fortunate that happened because that's what really drove the need for non-invasive diagnostics to qualify patients for DAA treatment for hep C. And that's where I really learned the fundamental lesson that I follow to this day, and that's that therapeutics drive diagnostic need. There was very limited access to non-invasive technologies at that time, but what really drove that was the fact that we really had to have a non-invasive way to assess liver stiffness. So that's what led me to today. Thanks, Roger. Okay, so and then and then um, one thing our audience wouldn't know about you uh, and might not suspect if you didn't tell them. But what they would know about me, I used to be a runner. I once got 12th place in the annual Boulder Boulder 10K, which is the largest citizen race in the United States. And I got 12th place and there were about 40,000 people running that year. So 12th place for my age and sex. That was the, shall we say, the peak of my athletic career, as pitiful as it was. <laughs> I can't match that. And most people I know can't either. Although uh, I was talking offline yesterday with Jorn Schottenberg about how many marathons he's completed. That was because he had the picture of the New York and Boston marathons on the back wall of his newly redecorated office. I wish I could make such a claim. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he's the first person I've known who's talked about the agony of Heartbreak Hill from a first-person perspective. <laughs> so that's great. And now you are winding down at, at EchoSense and, and joining Cronwell. Just before we dive into the talking about Neshtag, so people understand your various perspectives, what kinds of things will you be working on at Cronwell? Well, it'll be an extension of what I'm doing. We'll talk a little bit about this later, I'm sure. But I think the, the next frontier in terms of non-invasive diagnostics and moving to the fatty liver treatment era is going to be diagnostic solutions to pull together therapeutics with optimal efficacy requiring minimal provider effort. And I also believe that non-invasive diagnostics are going to become very complex as we have different drugs reach FDA approval. And that's really the core of the efforts that you'll be seeing coming from the Cronwell team. That's great. And with that as a backdrop, let's dive into Nashtag a little bit. You were there in person? I wasn't able to attend this year, but I attended virtually, which was quite convenient. Yeah. And um, in fact, and then listen to all our podcasts. So uh, we, we, we appreciate that as well. So I attended virtually as well. And, and you also sent me a nice note about our coverage, which we appreciated. What struck you most about Nashtag this year that was different from other years, besides the fact that you were virtual this year? probably were in person most of the years because I've seen you there. Absolutely. And obviously, Nashtag felt very, very different this year. Everything was energized. It was absolutely palpable. I think we're all very, very excited about the positive phase three readout, or at least a partial
partial readout that we've seen from Resmeteron. I think everyone now has renewed hope that indeed within a reasonable time period, we have a chance at an FDA approved NASH drug. And that really changes everything. I just found it to be a, a palpable increase in the energy level around the entire space. Yeah, I think we all felt that. Was there a particular moment or talk in the meeting that grabbed you on that front where you said, boy, this is different, this is better? No, I can't cite a specific session because it really penetrated all the sessions, particularly encouraged by the readout that Steve Harrison gave on phase three readout and also very, very interested in what Maru Ranella had to say when she gave us an overview of what we expect to see in the AASLD fatty liver practice guidelines, which I believe are imminent to be published. They sound eminent. What about it that you find most interesting? I am particularly encouraged with what has happened across the board with the societies in terms of clarifying the fact that we need to be testing all patients with risk factors, specific guidance on how to do it and how to manage the patients based on the staging that comes out of that NIT sequence, which of course Maru covered in detail. And of course, this isn't just ASLD. I'm very encouraged by the consistent we see in terms of the guidance from AGA, from ACE, and soon-to-be ASLD. It's just very encouraging to see all of that come together and have a direction that everyone could use. So we're in what I like to call violent agreement on that. One of the other conversations as part of this episode is the one we had yesterday with Pam Danaher, who's a senior VP for regulatory attorneys. And part of what we were talking about in that conversation and in several others recently was how interesting and challenging it will be to transfer those guidelines and the new drug approvals, given how the profession and the fatty liver community has thought about the disease and treatment thereof to date. In that context, my favorite statement has been um, what Scott Friedman makes about biopsy as a straitjacket. Other than the obvious, how does that strike you and what do you what, what do you see as a straitjacket around biopsy? Well, I like the term and I intend to start using it and claim it as my own. Obviously, the biopsy straitjacket goes significantly beyond just the challenges of getting a drug through the FDA approval process, which have been discussed in uh, very, very detailed manner on your podcast. But I also believe that the biopsy straitjacket has, has confined us in terms of our progress, in terms of being able to qualify patients for drugs once they are approved. If we look at the accomplishment that we saw Resmeteron make in terms of NASH resolution and fibrosis improvement, I think we need to appreciate this from a slightly different perspective. I believe those efficacy values that we see for NASH drugs are a function of two things, the baseline efficacy of the drug that's being used, but I also think it's a function of the qualification process we used to get the patient on that drug to begin with. And obviously, we're all confined at this point in terms of we can only qualify patients for these drugs in clinical trials using biopsy data for the most part. I suggest, I hypothesize, when we move to phase four and we have large numbers of patients qualified for these drugs and we're doing frequent and appropriate therapeutic response monitoring with non-invasive tests, I think we're going to learn some things from a feedback loop where we look at those non-invasive tests, who's responding based on NIT, and what their NIT values were at the time we enrolled them. I hope that we can 
can refine over time how we qualify for the patients for these drugs in a way that's superior to what we can get from biopsy alone. So that, to me, is the hope of of escaping the straitjacket of biopsy. Do me a favor. For our listeners, paint a picture of one way that might work in practice. Well, I'm hoping once we move to phase four and we're doing registry trials that we can think through it and we can use a variety of NITs and capture that data that's used to qualify the patient for the drug. And then I hope we can think through, shall we say, a more frequent therapeutic response monitoring sequence using those same NITs that we use to qualify and carefully monitor that data for signals that tell us how we might do better with refining our drug qualification metrics. I hypothesize there will be a signal there and that we can do better, especially as we add new NIT to the mix, such as genetic factors and so forth. That, that all makes tremendous sense. So it's interesting. You use the phrase NITs. And one of the, I think I, I said this to, I think, Amy Articolo on episode three, maybe, that one of the senses in which I think that we're straightjacketed by biopsy is that we describe everything that's not a biopsy as a non-invasive test. And in fact, in a post-biopsy world, there are going to be other ways we need to think about tests, right? For example, liquid tests versus imaging tests. Tests where you can get immediate response in office and therefore counsel the patient as soon as the test is completed versus those where you have to wait for the result to come back. As somebody who's spent a bunch of time with in-office imaging tests, I'm wondering how you believe we will progress in terms of thinking differently and more expansively about which tests to use when and how to use them in combination in that context, both contexts, the one you just gave and the fact that we're not going to talk about just tests and biopsy and IT anymore? Good question. Certainly well stated. I think the future is, and I think we can all agree on this, is the vast majority of testing will be non-biopsy, non-invasive, if I can still use the term. And I think we're going to have a wide variety of tests that need to be done at the right time in the right patient and used in the right way. And there's a lot there that we just don't know yet. Obviously, we have the wet biomarkers. We have the device-based biomarkers markers such as elastography and other methods of uh, detecting and quantifying extent of hepatic steatosis. I think there's a strong future for combined markers that combine wet biomarkers and, and values that we get from devices, citing things like FAST and MAST and potentially MIFIB. I think genetics is going to come into this as we move to customized, personalized medicine. And I think there'll be, even be a role for artificial intelligence, not only as a standalone, but this is going to get so complicated when we look at a battery or a sequence of tests that there may be a role for artificial intelligence-powered techniques where we look across a variety of tests and we better analyze what those tests are saying rather than siloing our tests and considering their values as standalones. So that's interesting because I've heard AI's value in the long term described in two other ways, but never exactly that one. Well, I've never heard anyone else state that as well. That's me kind of reading the tea leaves. And it just seems logical to me that there may be a path there that takes us beyond siloed tests where we consider them a standalone. That to me seems very inhibiting. And it seems to me once you, you know, you've moved the idea of a blinding flesh or the obvious. (laughs) 
Yes. Okay, I would call your statement a BFO because we think about AI right now in the context where we can aggregate large amounts of data, which we cannot yet do with the artists formerly known as non-invasive tests. Because even if you take all the data as, for example, Neil NIT is doing and as others are doing and trying to pool data from existing clinical trials, you're not going to have a large enough data set to run AI in the ways that you're talking about. Correct. Yes. However, once you start getting hundreds of thousands or millions of patients onto drugs and they wind up being in phase four registries or in the integrated medical records of electronic health records of large systems like Kaiser, we should be reasonably quickly, like in a matter of a couple of years as compared to a decade or two, able to aggregate enough data to start asking that question. That's my perspective exactly, Roger. I think the only path to this is in phase four registry studies, large numbers of patients using a wide variety of tests to qualify the patient and frequent therapeutic response monitoring. I think that's the only way we get the data to stand a chance at these kinds of approaches. I'm buying all that, except what do you mean by frequent therapeutic monitoring? Well, we're currently constrained by insurers. For example, elastography is constrained by the majority of insurers. It can only be done once every six months. We have a therapeutic timeline much faster than that when we're talking about, for example, metabolic drugs that lower steatosis in the liver and improve the metabolic profile. So I think we're going to need to think about how often do we need to test in order to get the signal we're looking for. Please appreciate the the history of a six-month elastography test is it's based on the fact that fibrosis responds fairly slowly. And we may be talking about signal here that responds much more rapidly than fibrosis alone. And I think we need to think about that. That's interesting. One of the thoughts I'm having is, and uh, Naeem showed these slides um, in the meeting, and we talked about it, I think, in one of the episodes, the work that Histoindex has done to do zonal analysis and to identify all the Furman works here, but resmeteron seems to work there, and here and there are not the same zones of the liver. So I suspect, I'm, I'm going to run with your idea for a second, that one of the challenges we will have over time is bringing that data set, which will not be part of standard practice because it's biopsy-based, together with the, probably in this case, liquid tests, to figure out how to liquid test translate, and are there liquid tests that translate into zonal analysis? Can we put all that together? Because if you can do that, then either that or genetics will get you tailored therapy. Yes, there's a whole universe out there where we, where we have ideas on things that we think we should do that may yield fruit. And I just think this draws attention to the fact that we're still in the early days of knowing how to qualify patients for these tests and monitor therapeutic response. And this is going to get exponentially more complicated when we have more than one drug and we start to do combination therapies. So now that you've led into combination therapies, talk to me a little bit about how you think that's going to work and how that's going to fit in with everything else we've been talking about. Well, I believe it's inevitable that we will have combination therapies. I think it will be required to use combination therapies in certain circumstances. So I think there's no question that we're going to have to move to that, but it's going to be very, very complicated making decisions on what to do and when to do it and how to monitor the response. I think clearly what we're going to find is insurers are going to be interested in detecting non-responders early and getting them off the drug and potentially onto another drug. You've talked about in your podcast the concepts of an induction drug that quickly induces a therapeutic response of a specific target, and then perhaps the patient goes on a different drug or a different dosage. My hypothesis, my view of the future is that's precisely correct, but it's going to become very, very complicated, and we're going to have to make it simple for the average clinician who doesn't think about this stuff all day to do this correctly. And that, to me, is 
going to require some digital solutions that guide the provider through these are the things you should consider doing next and this is how you consider that information being provided. A lot of complexity. So one of the things I believe is that complication is the enemy, but complexity is actually the solution. That if you take a look at complexity theory, complexity theory is the straight line through a muck of data. If you're willing not to take the engineering perspective, which is that error is everything, and to take a perspective that goes fundamentally, there are only six different kinds of harbors in the world. No two are identical, but they all take one of six basic shapes. I'm thinking that your digital solution might really help with that. Yeah, that's my view as well. And I think that's where you'll see development activity. Okay, so so that's a physician-centric solution, really. It's about making the physician's task more manageable. Now, that will have benefits for everybody in the chain, don't get me wrong, but I'm wondering, other than making it easier for the physician to talk to the patient, where is the patient-centric piece in that, do you think? Yeah, excellent question, and an area of strong interest for me. I think there's much to be done in terms of educating the patient, informing the patient on their specific condition, motivating them to take the correct action to improve their condition, giving them positive feedback as they make progress. I think there's a lot we can do in terms of clarifying diagnostic tests so that the patient can actually understand them, appreciate where they are in the progressive disease process, and motivate them to change. I think all of us need to think about how we can better express the information we get in diagnostics to the patient and how we can better motivate that patient to take action. And of course, that's a big part of what is being advanced and evolved with lifestyle modification. We need to remember one of the therapies that we have to choose from is not just another drug. We're told by the AGA and by ACE that lifestyle modification is a baseline core therapy that should be deployed first. I hypothesize my bias is the lifestyle modification should be and will likely be used in concert with these NASH drugs. And that means we're going to have to have ways that don't take a lot of provider time that effectively express this disease in lay terms the patient can understand and be motivated by. I think we have to have digital solutions to educate the patient, to stay close to them as they start to implement not only drug therapy but lifestyle modification and ensure their compliance. This is going to require uh, digital tools like apps, mobile apps that are constantly communicating with the patient remote patient monitoring on things like weight, activity level, medication compliance. I think there's a whole universe there of communication to the patient that can be catalyzed. So, um, spoiler alert to our listeners, on March 1st, we're going to drop an episode that's exactly about this subject on digital therapeutics and digital apps and how they support. And I expect that either Jerry or his colleague, Joe Rubenstein, will be part of our session that day. So you'll get to hear Jerry talk more about this particular issue or Joe at that point in time. I think those are all the questions that I was hoping we'd get to cover in a remarkably efficient 29 minutes, um, which will be less than that when we filter things down as we do. What other issues emerged from the meeting beyond these that you would like our audience to be thinking about? That concludes my current thoughts, Roger, but I would like to conclude by making a few comments about the Surfing Podcast and what it means to me. Not just for Nashtag, but ever since you began this effort, you have become the third rail of keeping me current with my knowledge with everything that's going on in the fatty liver space. I do everything I can to read publications that are relevant to what I do. As they're published, I 
certainly listen to to webinars. I, I go to conferences, but without question, the clearest and most concise information stream that I have is your podcast. To listen to thought leaders who are involved in all of these developments talk about not only about what we know, but talk about what we don't know and what we need to pursue just has tremendous value to me. And I have a huge amount of gratitude for you and the team and what you do. And I'd just like to publicly say thank you for what you do. Well, so first of all, thank you. Second of all, those who know me know I'm blushing right now, although you can't hear that in my voice. And you also should know that Jerry did not have to say anything about this podcast in order to get into this discussion. So thank you so much. Where it leads me is that one of the things I will be talking about, either in the introduction to this entire episode or at the end of it, is that we're asking our listeners who feel the way Jerry does to go on whoever... Jerry, how do you listen to this podcast? Who do you get it through? Do you go directly to Buzzsprout or do you go through like Apple or someone like that? Uh, I use uh, Apple podcast app. So what we're asking is that everybody who uses a podcast app write reviews for episodes that you like and talk about them. The reason we ask for that is that reviews actually drive ratings and they drive listeners and they drive ratings and they drive consistency. And the ratings drive greater presence and that will enable us to get more information out to you faster and for you to find it easier and more currently. So thank you for the kind words, Jerry. Uh, the only thing I'm going to ask you to do is put it in your Apple review of not this episode because you're talking. If you want to put it in the review of this episode, gosh, they were so smart to have that guy Mabry on as a guest. Uh, Go go for it, but when you can, all right? Beyond that, let me just say thank you for being with us today. Uh, I've known Jerry since Nashtag 2020, I want to say. I started talking with you at that point in time. And you, my friend, have been a tremendous source of insight for me in, in terms of understanding where things are going in the device space and how to see opportunities. So one thank you deserves another. I'm excited to see you transition to Cromwell. Thank you for all the guidance you've given me over the years. And with that, let's wrap this conversation. I'll move on to the third and then to the end of the episode. Have a great day, my friend, and we'll see you on the podcast, you or Joe on the podcast uh, next month. My pleasure. Thank you, Roger. Bye-bye now. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation. Or if that doesn't work, send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our first non-Nash tech content of 2023. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.